0: You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection And she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this Radio show and our great guest, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Murray.
1: Good evening. Well, Lloyd, you may remember just a few weeks back we had the great privilege of meeting a wonderful woman named Susie Vanderlip, and she is terrific. And when we heard what she talks about professionally as a professional speaker and about her books and the great work that she does, I said, We have to have her on our show. So let me tell you about Susie Vanderlip, who is a professional speaker, an author, and an expert on family and teen issues. She's a nationally known professional speaker on prevention, youth, and family issues, and she's the author of the iParenting Media Award-winning book called 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen, Guiding Teens to Good Choices and Success. Susie's professional speaking program called Legacy of Hope has reached over a million people, and she's done this in corporations and in schools, and she's done this across 47 states and Canada. She has been a teen and family issues expert on the national television, on Fox News, and is one of only 178 speakers since 1977 worldwide to be inducted into the National Speakers Association Prestigious CPAE Speakers Hall of Fame. This was awarded to her in July in 2007, and I'm a member of that organization, and I know how really wonderful it is. You really have to do a lot to become a CPAE. She also presents emotional well-being, stress management, and life balance workshops that provide participants experiential practice in the healing message of Legacy of Hope and you can find out so much more about her at our website at kuci.org/privacy piracy but also you can find out about her at legacyofhope.com and ways to protect.com so, without further ado, I want to thank you so much, Susie, for joining us tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure, Mari. Thank you. Well, it was so fun when we got to meet each other, and, and you never know what's going to happen when you go to dinner at somebody's house.
2: Yeah, isn't that true? It's lovely. That was really nice.
1: Well, you know what? Tell us what you do as a youth and family issues expert. Why don't you explain that?
2: Well, predominantly my job is to help create awareness and make it safe for both teens and adults, teens and parents, to look at themselves and their relationships um, a little bit more, um, I would guess you might want to c- call it consciously, but be more aware of what's really going on be- behind people's behaviors, behind their teenagers' behaviors. For teens, what's going on between, you know, behind your parents, uh, if they're being critical or telling you what to do? What's really going on in your relationships? And that really boils down to what emotions are motivating people to act a certain way and to make certain choices. So it takes them a little deeper. It's my job is to help them understand what are the feelings in families and in the kids um, that might motivate them to make the poor choices, the dangerous choices, and how we can communicate in a much more effective, compassionate, better listening skills, better ways to communicate um, so those feelings get resolved. There's more harmony within a family. Teens feel more self esteem more important more their lives are worth uh not taking you know not using the alcohol the drugs joining gangs you know irresponsible sexuality it deals with all those choices it also my job is also one step deeper, and that is i I have a uh, a specialty area which is certainly families with alcoholism and drug addiction of any kind within the family, and how helping families and youth really understand. How has that affected you self-esteem-wise? How has that affected you emotionally? And not just the user. It's what we call a family disease, and everyone in the family gets emotionally impacted, and then those emotions become the motivators for all kinds of other choices.
1: Well, that's why I wanted to have you on your sh- on our show. And the reason is, when we talk about privacy, there's so many types of privacy besides information privacy. And family issues are often private. I know as a mother of two kids that were very recently teenagers one is 23 and one is 29. And I've been through that time where it's so difficult to communicate, especially with someone of your own gender, my daughter, you know, that, those issues and it's private, you know, you, you try and understand. And of course the kids think that anything that they are feeling is private and that they shouldn't have to share it with their mom and dad. And, and then parents also feel like, gee, my fears and my worries about them, you know, they're coming out in a way that maybe is insidious and instead of coming out truly. So those are private issues. And then the other privacy aspect is when you have alcoholism and drug problems in a family, people are embarrassed, people hide it, especially the person who is the drug abuser or the alcohol abuser. They try and hide it. It's a private matter for them, and they don't think that they should express it. So for my listeners who are used to hearing us talk about information privacy and other types of privacy. This is a privacy issue. It is an issue of how one is keeping things from others and how they feel it should be kept from others.
2: I think that's a very very good point you've made.
1: Very well, good point. Yeah, so so tell us, and I know we're going to talk more about how you got into this, but what is your program, Legacy of Hope, and, and how does it impact your audiences?
2: Legacy of Hope uh, is a... Basically, a one-woman theatrical. Half of it is a theatrical one-woman show where I portray eight different characters coming from families where they are. You're, we're calling it privacy, you know, but I also want to call it secrets because when we have alcoholism or drug addiction, or we have any um, relationship strain in our rela- in, in families, we keep it private. Be, uh, we keep it almost well. I would say we keep it secret because we feel that somehow we're to blame, or we have, or we should be ashamed. Um, there's a lot of stigma in our society that alcoholism and drug addiction is a moral issue, and it's certainly becoming very, very aware from all of the medical research uh, that it is a brain disease. It's truly a biochemical issue. Uh, the behaviors are pretty ugly that come out of that biochemical imbalance, but it's truly something that is also physiologically based. So, Legacy of Hope, I portray these characters that are dealing, are coming from families where there's alcoholism or drug addiction, or there's. Um, lots of verbal abuse, maybe there's a little physical abuse, maybe there's kids are cutting on themselves, they're having sex, they're depressed, they're suicidal, they're in gangs, trying to cope with all of this emotional uh, upheaval in their lives. And then I become myself and I actually process these characters. The characters touch both youth and adults much deeper. That goes right beneath the intellect, right to the heart. The feelings the characters portray are very real and very raw and it makes people really feel and once you get somebody where they are feeling the message then they're going to listen and they listen very well to the message Um, and I I try to help them understand that the privacy or the secrets that we're keeping are just the very things that can keep a family sick there's a phrase called uh, we are as sick as our secrets and sometimes that is true Sometimes we are as sick as, as how badly we try to pretend to ourselves or to the outside world that we aren't having these problems because there's so much help and there's so much compassionate help, nonjudgmental help in this world today that um, Legacy of Hope is designed to, to surprise people, take them to a place where they identify, and then they listen, and then they become ready and actually eager to reach out and ask for help.
1: Well, I have to tell you that I I am so excited that I'm going to hopefully get a chance to see you do this, but our mutual friend told me the story of what you do. If you could just give a little bit of a sneak preview of what you do that just shocks everybody, I think it would be a trip for people to listen to that.
2: Well, um, I come out. My opening character comes from the back of the aud- back of the auditorium, or back of the theater, back of the gymnasium.
1: And I need to stop you for one second. And everybody who's listening to this, this woman is just adorable. Dark, long hair, gorgeous face, gorgeous figure. Just, Thank just you. the cutest. As cute as a button. And so you need to understand that she transforms, and now she's going to tell you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I I really needed to tell people that they're in, they can see you at your legacyofhope.com, what what you look like, but I I think they need to kind of get that understanding, that basis, before you tell them how you dress. (laughs)
2: Okay. Um, um, I'm very grateful that I've had the background, which we can go into afterwards, to prepare me to be able to be capable of doing this, but... Uh, I come out as a Hispanic 14-year-old gangbanger, and I talk like this so they don't know who I am, and I do some hip-hop dance, you know, and and so basically I'm talking in kind of a a, a Spanglish, and uh, I'm a hip-hop dancer, I do hip-hop, I'm dressed from head to toe, covered up like a gang member, and I saunter out onto the performance area and do a monologue about growing up in a home where this kid's dad drinks daily and beats on him like two or three times a week, and he went out and he joined a gang because he was lonely. And he's an angry kid, and he just absolutely is believable. I have middle school little girls fall in love with him, (laughs) and I have adults, when I do this in hotels, uh, call security on me when I'm hanging out. You know, (laughs) as Julio is his name, Julio, I hang out in the, you know, kind of the uh, outside the performance the, the room, until I go in, just to kind of scare, make the audience kind of alert. What's going on here when I come in? Um, they wonder what the heck is going on. Where's yeah? That? Who's
1: going up to the podium? Who's that? Right. They really don't.
2: It's just uh, it's it's very um, fun shocking. To do. Yeah. But it's really done intentionally because the idea is that if you want to get people to move out of an intellectual kind of critical, you've got to prove it to me. Place you've got to grab them so they go. Wow, this is worth looking at. And this little boy, this character, is based on a real young man that I met. In fact, all my characters are. They're not made up. They're not artificial. They're very real. Well, then after he finishes doing his angry monologue, right in front of the audience, I strip off the clothes, and the kids are going, what's going on? Why is this kid <laughs> taking off his clothes? And underneath, I'm wearing a bright red uh, cheerleader outfit. And in fact, it's the cheerleader outfit I used to wear when I was in high school. <laughs> and, um, and now I'm a middle class, kind of upper middle class teenage girl, who's talking about her dad who makes a lot of money and drives a red car, but yet... It, you know, yeah, he does drink too much, but really it's, you know, my mom's fault because she screams and yells at him too much. <laughs> and she talks about how she's going to get good grades, she's going to get into the best college that the college her dad really wants her to. And what's the big deal anyway? She drinks, you know, she smokes some pot or, or drinks some beers or, you know, steals some Zanny's, Xanax or, you know, some pharmaceuticals, you know, with her friends when they can sneak them. So what's the big deal? She's going to help her dad. She's going to just get into the college she really wants her to. And, and and I keep morphing right in front of the audience from character, throughout. By taking off more clothes. <laughs> yeah, I have. I do wear a you know full length unitard underneath, and um, and I have a coat rack with all these different characters' costumes on, and I right in front of the audience, you know, transform into these each of these characters. I now, love some it. Some of them are are pretty heart, you know, pretty gut wrenching, and some are very funny. Right. Um, so it So you take emotions. people to
1: to the highs and the lows and the laughs and the cries.
2: Right. And also that what's so great about using the, the dramatic arts is that there's a lot of subtlety uh, of feelings and underlying issues that you can portray. They take a lot of words, but people don't get until they feel them.
1: Right. And I mean, that's it's like when we all go to a movie and we're all crying in the movie or we're laughing our head off or we're terrified. You know, when we're watching that, I think, you know, that, that people can, like you said, they can relate, they can emote with people.
2: People need that. You know, when I do the processing, what I found in things I do that's very intriguing, and I think maybe the listeners might find this intriguing as well, there's a place in the, in my, when I'm working with every audience, whether it's middle school kids, all the way to you know, college and adults, I will ask them to do this little exercise and identify the feelings they saw the characters portray. Because the first step in be, being able to manage and cope with feelings in a healthy way is to be able to know what you're having them, what are we feeling. Well, and I've some
1: people to, are really numb part, or you know, and some people are very numb to their feelings. Yes,
2: that's and, true. And and that is often a coping skill learned in childhood.
1: Exactly. And, and some same. people so um they don't even know. A, right, and some people just see their hurt as anger, right? Right. So th- many, the many, Yeah. Many. So so many of our emotions can come out if we don't know how to recognize them.
2: Exactly. Now this the part that I find intriguing is the middle school kids will immediately identify 30 to 40 subtle emotions. Their hands, every hand is in the air. When I do a high school crowd, I will get about 10 to 15. And when I do a strictly all-parent, you know, often I'll do parent uh, awareness programs in the evening. And then when it's strictly adults in the crowd that are not therapists or psychologists, guess how many emotions they'll identify?
1: How many? Three. Wow.
2: Three. That's really very common. To just get three. And so then I ask a multiple choice question of all these different audiences, a, do you think that middle school students have more emotions than high school students and adults? Or B, do you think as we get older we begin to hide, deny, and suppress our feelings? Everybody says B. Yes.
0: Everybody
2: knows it's B. Right. So then I asked them to tell me why. Why do we hide, deny, and suppress our feelings as we get older? And I would have to say 99.9% of the answers are not what I would call life-affirming, relationship-building answers. They're not positive. They're all to protect ourselves. This level of privacy is because people have had been made fun of. They've been told you're weak if you have emotions. You're bad. Uh, you shouldn't, you know, there's no time for that. Um, we've, people have used people's feelings against them. You know, all kinds of things have happened. Gossip.
1: Right. All kinds
2: of things happen in our world because we are very uncomfortable Dealing with feelings.
1: And that's why, because true. people trust, and then their trust is betrayed if they do reveal, you know, and that's why they're afraid to do it again.
2: And now, the key is, is understanding why the person who may have broken that trust, what was in them emotionally to make them do that. So often, people's actions aren't about us. And that's one of the lessons I'm t- trying to teach people to, is not to take everything personally, not to think everything's... But one of the things that's very important that I also share in Legacy of Hope is a little bit about brain chemistry, especially in our kids. And the amygdala is where we have emotional motion start. The amygdala is the first place in the brain that gets turned on when we go to make any decision in life. And that's true whether you're a child or an adult, male or female. And that is where we store a certain amount of emotional memory. So the first piece of information in every human being's brain that we use to make choices in life is emotion, whether we wish to deny it or not. Right. The second place is the prefrontal cortex. Now, that is where we analyze and think things through. That's where we have impulse control. But the kicker is the cortex starts to grow when kids are 12. It keeps going until they're like 24 to 27 years old. Then your kids are almost grown. Your brains are almost cooked.
1: Right, and right.
2: what that means is, is that kids in middle school and high school truly do not have the cortical development to see the consequences control the impulses they are making decisions based upon emotion mm-hmm. and so parents on the other hand sometimes suppress the emotion ignore the emotion and just try to go logical
1: that's yeah and they, they try and that's argue why the with them is so difficult yeah cuz they're trying to argue with them in a logical manner and the kids are thinking in an emotional manner
2: that's correct and we have to if we if we understand that as a basis then we can start communicating about one of the basic, the underlying emotion to all the other emotions. I mean, there are two basic emotions. This is in the book. I talk about it. It's either love or fear. Mm-hmm. And out of fear comes the anger. Out of fear comes hatred. Out of fear comes jealousy, rage, victim. All these different feelings. So, if parents and teens can begin to say, "Wait a minute," you know, I know you're getting angry and upset. What, what might you be? You know, what are you afraid of here?
1: Right. And
2: each one can say that to one another, and then they have to keep their mouth shut and allow that person to express themselves without judgment, because emotions aren't bad. We're not bad no matter what we feel. It often comes from illusions in our minds or things we've assumed. Many times kids assume their parents don't love them because parents aren't talking to them about their feelings. So they think, my parents don't care about me, because kids so much, teenagers want, they want, to be valued. They want their feelings to be respected. and they Because, you see, they're proud of the fact that they have all this feeling, that they care so much. Exactly. So it, all the book, the Legacy of Hope program, it starts to create an awareness, maybe even a respect for one another's feelings. Now, you know, and really it's important.
1: To, yeah, and it, I want to say that what you just talked about with regard to respecting feelings and hearing each other and... Um, really applies to young adults and all adults. It does. You know, as a mediator, I see people when they're in conflict, and what comes out in conflict? It's fear, right? Right. So, and and it's emotion. Right. <laughs> so, I have the same issue in trying to help people see that fear. You know, when you spell the the word fear, F E A R, that's false expectation appearing real. Excellent you know, and, and to get beyond the fear, I have to say, what is going on here, you know, and get even adults. So exactly what you said really applies to all of us. So here we're sitting on the campus of the university of California, Irvine, and we have young adults, we have professors, and we also have people who are business people driving by. And I can tell you from doing business mediation, when people are angry at each other, anytime you're in conflict, the biggest thing that comes out is fear, fear and anger. So you know, what you deal with with young people really applies as well to all of us.
2: I totally agree. I've often said the best way to handle conflict is either, go, you know, you either work it out with a lawyer or with a psychologist or maybe, you know, maybe both.
1: Or someone you know, who knows how to do to both. Yeah, it
2: <laughs> Because it's true, underneath all of our conflicts and all of our joys are our feelings. And I, I think it is important. I, I, teach children, I teach teens and I teach parents and adults and corporate people that when you feel angry, Stop. Pull out a sheet of paper, and do an "I fear" letter. Now, I like to do be spiritual, so for me, I'll say, "Dear God, I fear." But whatever right. works for the individual, it's important to start out by saying, "I fear," and then just write. I mean, think about when we're when, especially when males are growing up, very early on, they are taught taught to convert fear into anger. Right. Fear is not an acceptable emotion to express, but also because a male in the male part of society, it's, it's the job to protect and to go out and empower and attack. And you can't do that in fear. So we turn that into kind of an anger or, you know, a different, we morph it into another feeling. Yes. But when it comes to our relationships, anger doesn't help. It doesn't help between parents and teens. It doesn't help between um, people in business, and it doesn't help in marriages. So it's important when I feel anger, I've learned sit down and write, I fear when I'm angry and see what comes out. And it's amazing if we don't edit it and we just let it all flow. There's a lot of, a lot that can be revealed that we can then talk about. I'm angry because I didn't realize I fear that you don't love me anymore. Oh, that's a huge motivator in relationships.
1: And that's very much easier to hear. The other person can hear you better when you say I hear rather than you did this and I'm angry. That's it's much true. easier to hear one's fear because we most people want to help other people. So if I say, I'm fearful of this, the other person wants to say, well, gee, I want to help you if you're in fear.
2: I completely uh, agree. That's really a very, very important point.
1: Well, let me tell my audience who we're speaking with. We're speaking with this wonderful woman who I met recently. Her name is Susie Vanderlip. And she is a professional speaker, an author, an actress, a dancer, an educator, and an expert on family issues. And she is the author of this wonderful book that's in front of me called 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen. And you can learn more about that at her website at legacyofhope.com and also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, which we link there. So let's move on because I think it's important that people understand some of your history. You know, our life, and I know you're spiritual and you know I am too, and we always believe that everything in life happens for a reason. And even when we go through our deepest, darkest nights, that really it is a opportunity in disguise to create something new to help others. So why don't we talk about your inspiration and how you really came from you know the phoenix rising out of the ashes
2: well it is really amazing to me when i really look at how i came to where i am today um i i like to call it from a spiritual point of view a god thing it 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 just really wasn't something i planned um but it it was the weaving of several threads in my life that just came together so that today i think i use every single bit of my life experience in the work that i do uh I am, per- I am performing. Um, when I was in college, I went to UCLA, and believe it or not, I majored in math, computer science, but I minored in modern dance. I fell madly in love with both, um, but dance has really touched my soul. So I continued to dance after college, and I got in a local dance company in Orange County where I choreographed and performed for 25 years, and then I got to become an associate professor in dance at Coastline Community College and taught modern and jazz and hip-hop, and... Uh, So I developed a lot of performance skill and a tremendous amount of dance expertise um, out of love. It wasn't what I did to make a lot of money, but I really loved it. Now, that was one thread. Another thread was I met my first husband when I was in high school. I was 15. He was 17. We fell madly in love. Uh, I was a cheerleader. He was a football player. Um, I was blessed. I graduated valedictorian of my high school class at Lakewood High School in Lakewood, and I got uh, great grades, and I was a cheer- I was on student council, and I was voted most likely to succeed, and he was a, you know, really good-looking, big, stocky football player. And um, life was wonderful. We did not drink or do drugs of any kind when we were in high school. Then we went to college, and there we ran into sorority and fraternity parties. We ran into people who were drinking, and sure, we tried alcohol. We even tried a little pot, but from the beginning... He seemed to like it a lot. I mean, I hardly engaged. I'm much more of an energetic person, but he liked to quote unquote mellow and kind of mm, kind of tune out the world. Well, we graduated from college and got married and he became a dentist and I went into the computer industry as well as was dancing. And we made good money. We had a beautiful house on the hill in Orange County. We had, you know, had a Porsche. I had a BMW. We went on great vacations. I mean, we really were...
1: The Orange we were, County dream.
2: We were the Orange County yuppie. You know, we had to... And we were, pro- we were grateful for it. Um, but he had learned um, as a dentist that he could also now relax at lunch and after work on nitrous oxide. And then he could get prescriptions for Valium. And then... He could drink, a, you know, a beautiful bottle from Mondavi Vineyards in an evening, you know, a $100 bottle of wine, and then he could, uh, you know, so he began to uh, find ways, he called it, to cope with the stress of his job. But in truth, I, I understand his child enough to know it was troubled, and I believe he was running away from a lot of feelings because he really did not feel comfortable talking about feelings or past. So he he would self-medicate with alcohol or pot, uh, prescription drugs, and eventually he even got into using cocaine with doctors, dentists, businessmen, you know, professional people. And um, I began, it wasn't like he did this every day, and it wasn't even like, it's what you'd call being a periodic his drinking was heaviest on the weekends. Maybe he took a Valium during the week or he did this or he did that or he used nitrous. Of course, I wasn't there to see it. But what I saw was his behaviors change. And what changed the most was that he became withdrawn and then he became angry. And he had been my very best friend. He was a very wonderful, loving, just a, a tremendous person in my life. And now I felt alone and unwanted and like everything I did made him angry. And I thought somehow it was my fault. Somehow I had failed to help this man that I loved, and um, I actually, one night he was using, you know, one night he he was so withdrawn into video games and, and his drugs of choice for the evening, that I remember sitting on the floor and crying and thinking, I just want to jump in my car and drive off a cliff right near my house and not have to feel this way anymore. I was having these kind of suicidal feelings because I felt so at fault, and talk about privacy, I was telling no one. Right. Because... I had a very typical reaction, family member reaction, thinking, somehow it's my fault for not fixing this problem for the one I loved.
1: Right. And it's embarrassing.
2: Well, it's shameful. Yes. I mean, we have everything. We look so good. Why, why isn't
1: Right. On the working? outside, you are the perfect Orange County couple.
2: Right. And he still did go to work, and he was still a very well-respected dentist. And he still did quite well at the job. But at home, things were falling apart. Right. And he was not upholding his end as a partner in a relationship. I was handling all the finances, all the house, all the cleaning, all the, you know, everything. Um, and so the next day, a miracle happened for me. I was driving to work and crying, and I heard the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Addiction, a radio announcement saying, you know, do you listen for the sound of opening cans or the sound of somebody using drugs? And, and when you have a, somebody with an addiction problem, you do. You just kind of, the hair on the back of your neck goes up when you walk on the door, and thinking, ooh, you can tell by their body language, they're using. Right. Um, they said, do you think if you were more perfect, you'd get everything under control? And I had been trying very hard. And then they said, do you feel lonely, unwanted, and alone? And I thought, oh, my God, absolutely.
1: You thought, uh-oh, this radio is talking to me. This they're is a twilight zone. This is a twilight zone.
2: <laughs> so they said, you might be living with an alcoholic or an addict. And believe it or not, that's when it fi- first dawned on me that that was what it was. Because my parents were not alcoholics or addicts, and I didn't recognize this. I didn't knew nothing about the disease. Right. So they told me about places to go for the families of alcoholics and addicts, and, and they told me about doing an intervention, and I began to make it my commitment to learn everything I could about the disease of alcoholism and addiction, and how it affects the family members, how it had damaged me emotionally, and what I needed to do to recover. I have been focused on that for the last 26 years now. Um, I, I was doing all this kind of work and getting very involved in um, growing emotionally and healing. Um, and about a year and a half after I began that, one night uh, he was self-medicating for the flu, and he took some alcohol to cool down and pergadan painkiller and snorted some cocaine. And in the middle of the night, um, at the age of 35, his heart stopped, and he overdosed and died. Mm. No, I'd actually moved out. I even had filed for divorce by then, but I will guarantee you, after being with someone for 18 years from 15 year old old on...
1: Right, you were uh, children together, grew up together. It was, oh, was like preservation
2: I didn't yes. move, yeah you know, and, and it was extraordinarily grievous, you know, tremendously painful. Sure. And I, had, I went through a lot of grieving experience, which I also try to help young people and families realize we... We hide from grieving in this society, and it's something that has to be done, or you carry bitterness, or resentment, or self-loathing with you through the rest of your life. So, and again, that's
1: another issue that people think is a private issue, and and and, and that it really again, need we you need
2: as sick as our secrets.
1: Yes, again,
2: it, it, emotions are extraordinarily powerful and basic in every human life, and so I had a miracle happen. Um, Shortly um, around that time, I also met my current husband, Dr. Ken Vanderlip, and he is a psych- clinical psychologist and a very compassionate you know, man. And um, we have, you know, we've met, and I actually we met, I was in the dance studio, and he was doing judo in the next room because he's been doing judo for as long as I've been dancing. So we met through something we both love, but we found we had a common purpose. Our purpose was to help emotionally wounded people in this world.
1: Now, did you ever have any children with your first husband?
2: Uh, Actually, I did not. In fact, I never had any children of my own. I have about 20,000 children of people's children every year (laughs) that I work with. Um, We didn't have children in that first marriage, and I share this with kids because I think it's important for them to understand. I was ready to have kids when I was about 29, 30, but by then he had been drinking and smoking pot and using prescription drugs for about 12 years. And they don't put this on the bottles of alcohol or on the beer cans. They don't put it on the, you know, the papers you roll your joint up in. But after a man has been using alternatives like that for a long period of time, he can become what is called impotent. Mm. And I tell kids that means that not to be confused with sterile. It means the erector set don't work. Mm. And they get it. They laugh. But right, they get right. it. And they all are like shocked that I didn't know using drugs or Drinking lots of alcohol could do that. It's a great deterrent. Something
1: to think about. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you've studied this for so long. How serious of a problem is alcoholism and drug abuse in this country?
2: Well, they say today that one in four young people is growing up in a home where there is alcoholism or drug addiction today. So about 25% of our population is being seriously affected by this. And I'm not just, again, I like to make a very big distinction. For every one alcoholic or addict in the world... There are five to ten other people getting sick around them emotionally. The emotions that can drive them to the kids, you know, other people to drink or use in order to cope with the hurt, or can drive them to be suicidal, or drive kids to cut on themselves, or drive parent, people parents to shut down, or drive, you know, it, it motivates a lot of other destructive behaviors. Being the child of an alcoholic, or even just being the grandchild of an alcoholic, or being the spouse of, or the sibling of, it's a tremendously powerful disease and. It impacts business because in business today, there are many, many parents who are going to, or spouses who are going to come to work with all kinds of the kinds of emotions I had. And I guarantee you, it's impossible to concentrate on your job when you are worrying all day long about what they're doing. What am I going to go home to? When am I going to get the phone call that they've gotten into some kind of terrible trouble? You know, I got the phone call that he drove his Porsche off into a ditch and he wanted me to come save him. Luckily, by then, you know, I was working on understanding the disease, and I knew it was not appropriate for me to enable, and I just knew not to yell or scream, but just say, well, I think you'll be able to figure this, you know, out how to solve this, and I'll see you when you get home. Right. I did it without any anger in my voice, but I knew don't save an alcoholic or an addict from the consequences of their behavior, or they will never, ever, they will never get out of the denial, which is part of the disease. (laughs) But in business, um... There's a lot of lost uh, productivity, a lot of health issues for sure. Uh, and, of course, tobacco is also, though it's illegal, a, dr- a legal drug, it also is responsible for a huge amount of uh, health costs and health issues in our society. Um, a lot of people turn to food as their way of coping with feelings. And obesity is becoming a huge epidemic health problem in the, in the, in, to businesses and to the world. And, again, the feelings behind obesity, you know, about severe overeating are actually often no different than the feelings behind someone who uses alcohol or drugs.
1: Right. And, you know, I've had people say to me, my boss is so wonderful most of the time, but when he's drinking, he is screaming at me, he's screaming at everyone, I can't work for him anymore. Yes. And so it, it really destroys your good, loyal employees if you're drinking as well. You know, even if you think that you're managing at work and then you go home, and you're not managing it well, you really may not be managing it so well at work anyway. You know, because aren't, the, aren't people who are alcoholics and drug abusers, aren't they oblivious to their own, what they're doing?
2: Well, very, uh, it's very common. One of these, the traditional symptoms of an alcohol or drug addiction problem is denial. People start to use, usually, there are several factors. And many, many times... People start drinking at 12 to 14 years old, and they're four times more likely to become an alcoholic if they do, because the physical body has not, you don't have a fully-grown liver. You can't process the poison. Alcohol Mm, is a poison. Right. But there's also, they know today, that it has to do with the neurotransmitters, the communication in the brain. The people are born, some people are definitely born, with a lack of enough of the proper transmitters that make us feel good. And some of them correlate with, gee, you drink alcohol, suddenly you feel normal. You take meth, suddenly you feel good about yourself. That's because the neurotransmitters aren't working well. And many people who started drinking at 12 to 14 have said, that's the first time I felt like I fit in, like I was normal. Well, let's take that forward. And um, you start to rely on these kinds of things to feel normal. You think you're going to tell yourself it's a problem. No, there's a huge need for it. And then, of course, it actually goes into full-blown addiction where you don't even have a choice. Even uh, alcoholics and addicts can promise themselves and promise the people they love. This is not a question of intelligence or love. It is a compulsion that is so strong that even after they've promised themselves or the people they love, I'm not going to do this anymore, they go out and it just biochemically triggers the brain to absolutely be honest. Any kind of other impulse has to do it. So the denial is deep, and the only way they say that alcoholics and addicts can really get that they have a problem is to hit a bottom, to have a consequence that is so emotionally upsetting. Maybe it's just a DUI for some people. Maybe it's going to be a divorce. Maybe it's going to be a, a health problem. Maybe they're going to end up in prison. But something that might be strong enough to break through that denial system and say, this is not working.
1: Exactly. We're speaking with Susie Vander, Vanderlip. Let me see. We're speaking with Susie Vanderlip, who is a professional speaker, author, actress, dancer, educator, and she has a company called Legacy of Hope. And she is the author of this wonderful book that I have in front of me called Fifty Two Ways to Protect Your Teen. And she's an expert on family issues and alcoholism and drugs. Susie, I wanted to ask you a question, you know, when you were saying, okay, you know, one of the good things that you do when you go out to these schools or corporations is, you know, you help people to to bring this to a conscious level so that they can either not get involved or get themselves out of it as quickly as possible. But what about those people, those young people who already are addicted? What do you suggest for those who really are addicted?
2: I will tell you that one of the things that I do after I do these school assembly, when I do this as a school assembly, I have the school counselor and the principal give me a room where any kids who want to can come talk to me. And I stay all day, and sometimes I'm flooded with 20, 50, 100 kids at a time that come in, and we do kind of run an ad hoc support group coaching session. Um, And it's very interesting. The majority of kids that do come are those that are concerned about the way they're being treated by their parents, and eventually we find out that one of them does have a drinking or drug problem, or they're concerned about a friend whose behaviors they think are dangerous, or they're concerned about themselves. Um, I think one of the things that's important, one of the best things we can do, I also do this for parents, teachers, school counselors, law enforcement, uh, pediatricians, uh, therapists, mental health professionals, anybody who can be the first-line of awareness. We have to stop keeping this a private matter. Stop being afraid of it. It's a disease. You know, they used to treat tuberculosis as a secret disease. Right. And now we know it's just it can be treated. And believe it or not, you know, they're doing lots of research on finding vaccines and ways to manage DNA and help the brain chemistry. There will be ways to treat this on a physical level in the future. But for now, parents, I think it's so important for parents to pay attention to the changes their kids are going through. Now, every teenager is a bit of a schizophrenic. Every teenager has so much emotion and hormonal changes, they're going to have mood swings. But what happens if they've been a good student and now their grades are dropping? What happens if all of a sudden they're retreating to their room and they don't want to ever have anything to do with anybody else in the family? What if they are doing nothing but um, hiding out in video games and Internet? I mean, there's a, there's a whole issue of video game and Internet addiction today. Oh, uh, which Oh, abs- quite scary, scary, too, yes. Yes. Um, what if they start hanging around with, you know, kids that you know clearly look like they might be users and partiers or gangbangers and that kind of thing? Uh, it's very important to not pretend and not try to keep it private. Get yourself to the school counselor and say, I want to talk this out. Uh, I want some help trying to find a way to uh, either drug test my 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 child, um, to, if it's serious, or looks, if you already have found something in the bedroom, you know, let's talk about it, let's confront it, let's say this is... You know, this is a problem. This is not a, a, the way to manage you know, our life issues. Um, I know that sometimes it's because uh, the parents are just too busy. They're both working hard. They're trying to survive, and it's just one more thing that's just way too overwhelming. The key is to talk to your child and park your anger in the garage and talk from a place of I have fear for you because you're because I love you, and it's very important that we find. Solution. Now, it can begin by going in with your with your teen and talking to the counselor, or maybe you can get to some you know a therapist. And maybe it's to the point where it's very important to research and already look for a recovery facility. The the earlier it's true, if there's a legitimate alcoholism or drug addiction problem, if you get that teenager into a recovery rehab facility, and it you know it, it can do some outpatient, and it can be expensive for inpatient, but it's much more expensive problem through a lifetime if it's not dealt with. They're on my website, um, there is a Resources of Hope. Uh, down the left-hand navigation bar, there is a link to Resources of Hope, uh, which I list a whole variety of rehab facilities. You can also just call one of these professional organizations and ask them for advice. How do I know? What do I do? How can we assess my child? I can highly recommend Hazelden. They are in Minnesota. You can call them and talk to them, and, and they have an adolescent facility that's outstanding. doesn't mean you're going to have to send your child all the way to Minnesota, but you will get some support and ideas. You can also take yourself, parents, teachers, I advise anybody who works with young people to take the time to go to maybe an Alcoholics Anonymous, an open Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and just listen. Listen to this disease so we can understand what's the thinking and and how it's. You can see that it's a disease because you'll you'll see patterns in the way they think and have acted throughout their lives in every recovering alcoholic.
1: And Al Anon, also, for those people. That's the very
2: next one, and the most important one. And that's Al-Anon, which is the program for the family, friends, uh, people who care about anyone who has an addiction problem. And there you'll learn, how do I confront them? What are the kind of words I say? What should I do today when I'm upset? They, give you, you know, they have tools. People, they have what they call phone therapy, where you can call somebody in the midst of a confrontation and say, what should I say? What do I do? Help me. And you don't have to walk through all the fear in secret or without ideas.
1: It's and now, incredible. you know, that we have the, the Internet, it is just amazing. Yes. You know, obviously they can start with uh, your website, which is legacyofhope.com, and from there you've got resources there, and it'll just take you, you know, you can start on one of these uh, searches and end up, you know, Al-Anon and then get more and more Absolutely. searches, which is so much better than, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I now there have
2: links on my site to al Anon. To, um a tremendous number of resources that you can call and talk to, two hotlines. There's, uh, uh, there is help. There's an amazing amount of help. I also want to w- mention one other um, website that parents, I think, can be very helpful, and that is www.theantidrug.com. And that is a website with tremendous amount of information that's produced by our government. Our tax dollars have created this national youth anti-drug media campaign. It's online, and they have brochures. You can also have order. There's also, you know, so the, you know, we, we are luckily. I'm grateful to say that the, you know, the government is trying to help uh, our parents cope with these issues.
1: Yes, and again, we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, and everybody knows at the universities that's when kids get away, right? Yep. And they're on their own. They they don't have to like sneak into their house at night when their parents see them. So. Obviously, it's an opportunity for them to start drinking, to going to these parties, to experience new things, new drugs, new alcohol, all sorts of things. So everything that we're saying today, if you're a student listening to this, this applies to you. And it also applies to other adults. You're a young adult, but it applies to me and everybody else who would be listening to this. The wonderful suggestions that Susie Vanderlip has even though they're, she's focusing on teens because that's the way to get them when they're young and keep them from getting that. But those same tips apply to everybody. So her 52 ways to protect your teen are really, as I look through this book in front of me, I can see that it's really the same thing if you're going to talk to your parents or if you're going to talk to your colleagues or your friends or your children. It's all the same thing. You need to Make sure that you're walking your talk. If you're an alcoholic and then you try to tell your kids not to drink, you know, you have to heal yourself first. And she has a whole section on healing yourself as well. So I think it's terrific, Susie, all these wonderful things that you have. I'm very
2: passionate about it. It was a very pain, you know, it's just a very, very painful experience to love someone who's killing themselves with drugs and alcohol. And I do want to speak to your college students, being that you are there at UCI, if that's okay.
1: Sure, I do want you to do that.
2: Great, because... um, I'm I'm grateful. I'm an NCAA-approved speaker to speak to college athletes, and I work with orientation departments, and I work with residence halls, and I, you know, a Greek system. So I, I speak at colleges as well, and it's I find it very interesting. Um, and, you know, when, when we're in our 20s, we're, I think, a little more cynical or a little bit less likely to take what anybody says at, for, at face value. And we evaluate more deeply, and that's because the cortex has developed so, so much that we have that ability to do much deeper analysis and make our own decisions. So I find college students at first, you know, they're like, okay, you got to prove it to me. Convince me that what you're talking about, you know, is, is true.
1: And, you know, the college students, by the time they get there, they know more than any of us, right? And and that's okay.
2: You know, we all deserve (laughs) to have that opportunity to, to go through that growth process. Right. What I love, though, is that when a college student, when they get touched by the characters, actually when they relate to the feelings, and suddenly they are given permission, which we all need permission, to admit you're having these feelings. And it particularly shows up, I have to tell you, it's just been so touching to me, after shows, I stay again and talk to college students, and I've had any number of you uh, know college students talking to me about their significant other, you know, their their fiance, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, you know their love interest. There's so much agony when you have someone that you love who's drinking and using, and you know it's ruining their college education, or or it's ruining his their way they interact with you, and you're you're hurt and you're angry, and that's when Al-Anon is so terrific for college students. It can really help them really put, kind of put things into perspective and see where, what do I have power over with this person and what don't I have power over? What can I say and how can I say it so I don't just make them angry and walk out on me? Um, What do I do when I'm, you know, when I just can't stand to look at it and and they're using and drinking at this party and acting stupid? You know, it really gives you tools.
1: Exactly. You know, it just, I just jumped into my head, my assistant is getting her business degree not at UCI but at, at another university here in Orange County and she told me that one of her professors can be the nicest guy in the world, but they all know when he's drinking because he is so bizarre. Mm -hmm. He acts and they can smell the alcohol on him. And can you imagine, it was so terrifying for her that whole semester that she had him. She came back and talked to me about it. And, you know, I mean, everybody just stayed away from him when he had been drinking and then could talk to him when he wasn't drinking, but no one confronted it.
2: Well, that's a perfect example of the erratic behavior that comes from alcoholism and addiction. And let's keep in mind, I don't look at that professor as though he's a bad person. Right. He's a a man with sickness. Right. Part of his sickness is he doesn't even see how it's affecting his professional character or his work. Um, But what it creates in every student, that has affected every student in that classroom. Yes. It's affected their education. It's affected their trust levels of educators. It's, it, 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 it has some profound long-term impact. And the way to confront that person, um, though it's not easy, everybody wants to say, oh, it's not my problem. But it would make sense. Any student really has the right and perhaps even the responsibility to go to the counseling department and say, I am concerned about this particular professor. This is the behavior I see is happening. I just wanted to let you know so someone can uh, Assist this person, yeah. And right. then the counseling department's job, you know, it's it's their job to come to that person and say, you know, we're concerned about this behavior. Do you you know do you think you have a problem? And then they will have every you know most companies, most universities are going to have a protocol to follow when they have an employee who is showing these kinds of sickness. Mm-hmm. And hopefully today, I hope it is a compassionate protocol. It doesn't just say you know hey you qu- you're fired. More we you know we are going to require that you have this go to see this therapist we're going to require if it is diagnosed in such a way that you get this kind of, you know, rehabilitation. Uh, And if you take those steps, you know, you keep your job. If you don't, then we set a boundary. We don't enable. We say that these would then be conditions to lose your job if this continues.
1: Right. There's so many what they call EAP programs, employment, employment assistant programs, and I know that they have them in many corporations. I know they have them in school districts. I used to be on a school board. I remember that they had that for the teachers, Great. and and they do have it at many different places. But a lot of people just don't take advantage of it, and they're wonderful programs. Which you know leads me to another question. When we kind of go further, how can employees and manager employers and managers um, communicate better with their young adult uh, well, that employees?
2: That's a lot of fun. I, I'm working more and more with corporations that are, have said to me. Well, our older employees don't get these teenagers, and then they get mad at them. And the kids today, you, get, you know, you, you get mad at them, they'll just quit. And we're having a hard time keeping them. And that might change right now because everybody's unemployed. Right. Everybody <laughs> knows they have to keep a job. But in general, um, I think it's very helpful for, um, an, you know, an adult employee. Uh,
1: and managers, you know, and yeah.
2: managers. To get some of this, you know, I like to go in and do some of these programs and these awareness programs. Sometimes we even just call it stress management because people are comfortable saying they're stressed. Yes. But what they what they're really saying, stress is a little a six letter word that cover it's the cover up for all the emotion. If you look at if you really look at stress, stress is fear, fear of failure. And if I fail, then what? Fear of not being loved, or maybe it's you know, um, I I fear of just being in, insufficient, or it's you know. Just has lots of emotions in it, and those are the very feelings that some people drink about or use drugs about or whatever. And Did you know I- that
1: the State Bar of California requires us, as, um, for continuing legal education, that we have to take a course or a series of courses um, as we get our continuing education credits that include substance abuse and emotions did you know that no I didn't. and that is because attorneys have a very high rate of alcoholism yeah. and you know I was reading recently because I, I was looking at uh, some things some statistics on attorneys and attorneys and doctors and some of those professions that are high stress really do, Initiate or really enable people to get into alcohol because it's a quick fix, rather than dealing with the stress in a different way.
2: These are also people that are—they're um, in prestigious positions; they're highly looked up to. They're even taught that it's your job to maintain a level of—you um, know—look look like you have everything under control. That's your job. People are coming to lawyers and doctors and dentists, you know, to hey, fix my life and. So it's harder for professionals often to get out of the denial and to admit the, the problem and it's, it's just like my first husband died in total denial saying he drank and used to cope with the stress in his life. So you know sometimes we I come into a corporation to say, you know, let's just look at the stress levels. You know, let's talk about stress management and then in the process I do get a chance to do some characters and then to get them in touch with the emotions and help them understand how do we cope? How do we manage emotions in a real healthy way? And once we're once a person not afraid to say, I'm uncomfortable, I'm fearful. It's easier to talk between the generations because emotions are a common language. It doesn't matter who we are, where we come from, what religion, how old, what gender, we all have emotions. Now, if we say, if we share to one another, sometimes it's easier to, I've learned from my husband who's a psychologist. It really has helped me as well. The words we use are important. It's important to say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean.
1: Uh, I love too it. Many <laughs> children,
2: too many kids have grown up in a home where there has been meanness, especially if there's an alcoholic or an addict in the home. Meanness, cruel, cruel, verbal cruelty, verbal abuse, excess criticism, put-downs are a, one of the common...
1: And then the kids give it back because we learn what we live, absolutely. right?
2: Absolutely. Well, they learn from an... You know, especially if there's alcoholism or addiction or anger issues... Um, you learn from your parents. When you're angry, you hit. Or you learn when you're angry, you blame someone. That's typical of the alcoholic uh, thinking. And yes, where do you think bullying comes from in our kids? I do bullying programs. It's about somebody who is actually trying to cover up wounds. Yes. Emotions, trying to, you know, make, take, give it, make somebody else responsible. Take it out on somebody else because that's probably how they've been treated at home. So when in the workplace, we can't treat younger, younger people like degrading them. It won't work. The other thing is, is that so many kids have grown up in a home where both parents are working. So they haven't, a lot of them haven't had as much available, perhaps even consistent parenting. So, and they haven't had as much encouragement. It's very important to encourage teens. It's also they've lived in in a world where there's a tremendous variety of mental stimulation from all kinds of technology. It's important to give them a variety of tasks and creativity to actually, you know, treat them with a little bit of um, knowledge of how their brains operate. But I do think, and it's also very important to set boundaries, not let them get away with stuff. You know, if they show up over If you
1: look the other way, you know, we have. can't we, do that either. Right. We have uh, somebody in the neighborhood whose husband left her, and, and so she's got a bunch of teenagers. And, you know, the the sad thing is is there's been drugs and alcohol over, and we've actually brought this up to her, several of us in the neighborhood, trying to be supportive. And she said, I'd rather have him do it here.
2: Oh, that's. And that's just because the problem's out of control for her. Exactly. Exactly. So I, that woman, I would highly, you know, I would, I would, I would recommend, even offer. I'd say, let me take you to an Allen on me. I'll go with you if you feel afraid. See if you can find some people who can help you. Yes. Because how you interact with your kids is, uh, it's going to save your sanity. It's going to make you a much calmer, more um, able parent, and it may, actually, get your kids out of the problem.
1: Right. We don't have a lot of time yet, but you know when we look at society, which there is a lot of alcohol and abuse and i'm I'm fearful and I shouldn't be fearful, but I am concerned that with this economy with people out of work with people depressed, that they're going to turn to to this uh the issues of uh, alcohol and drug abuse to to soothe them yeah. so what do you recommend for people?
2: Well, I can tell you that my husband and I went through it at- <laughs> Extremely stressful period about a year and a half ago. It lasted for about 18 months. And it had to do with the remodeling of our home and some conflicts with um, our association and legal battle. And you know how yeah, that can be very stressful. Right. Um, and through my life, I've again, I, it is talking about how do we manage the emotion, how do we manage the stress, and basically how do we manage the fear. Oh, my God, how am I going to pay the mortgage payment? Oh, my God, are they going to turn off the electricity? Oh, my God, how do I send my kids to college? Here's what I suggest. Uh, Number one, it's very important to know that we are physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. And you can help yourself on any one, if not all four levels, to cope with these feelings and this stress. I know that on a physical level, if a person just gets out and takes a fast walk, or if you're a jogger, or if you go to the gym, or do something physical, because in a brain chemistry level, that will produce endorphins, which will raise your mood and you won't need a mind-altering drug right um the other thing is
1: um, well you got to do this quick because lloyd says it's the end
2: (laughs) okay all right well you know it's also i would suggest finding some spiritual material i don't care if it's religious or just spiritual find a way to start writing letters to god and tell him you are angry about the situation and get get close to your, your higher power again um and then reach out and ask for help you know there are go to some of these programs where you can talk about feelings of support groups where you're not the only one. You find out, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. And you also then get to hear other people's resourceful ideas. And one, all it takes is a smidgen of hope for us to be able to say no.
1: That's right. Well, we can also send people to your website at, you want to tell them your website?
2: Absolutely. It's legacyofhope.com and we also have a new website called de-stress de-stress success.com It's D-E with a dash, success, for success, De-stress for com.
1: Okay, and then they can also get your book, 52 Ways to Protect Your Teen. Absolutely. And we want to say thank you so much, Susie Vanderlip. You are terrific, and they can find out more also about you at our website. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank
2: you. It's been delightful.
1: You've been listening to KUCI, 88.9 FM and Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m., right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download our podcasts. You can listen to all of our archived interviews and you can see our, let's say, what else can you do? Oh yeah. And you can write us emails about what you want to know about in privacy. Thank you and good night. Stay private.